Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for this very evening, Saturday, March 21st, 2020. Once again, we have our friend Truthfids here with us, and we are going to present part six, addressing Charles Weissman's What About the Seedline Doctrine? Hello, Truthfids. Thanks for being here. For having me, uh, I definitely think this week it will be the one of the most interesting uh, chapters. You know, the serpent Weissman's gonna have to be really tricky with this one to skirt around the issue. And um, with everything, if you don't know who your enemy is, as we've said, then you've already lost. And if you don't know the, you know, the beginning of the story, you're not really gonna understand the rest of it. So if you understand who the serpent is, who our enemy is, then you start to understand the rest of the Bible. And that's why this part's so crucial. So really looking forward to this one. This is, um, I, I don't know, Weissman's kind of treacherous to me. In, in our last presentation, we came to the end of chapter two of Weissman's book and saw in one of his arguments towards the end of his section subtitled, The Enmity that Weissman agreed with us when he tried to explain it. He admitted that the serpent was an intelligent individual, or a person, if you will, who had its own order in the world, which was contrary to the order of God. And he admitted that the serpent had gotten Adam and Eve under his order instead of under God's order. And, and of course, this couldn't be true of a simple snake created on the fifth day of Genesis chapter one. So Weiss's, Weissman admitted the, that the basis for our so-called two seed line belief is true, but at the same time, he continued to deny two seed line. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this unfolds. I don't read ahead in his book. I still haven't. I, I just looked at chapter titles. I don't read it until I sit down to make my notes for this program and address it. Now we shall begin to address chapter three of Charles Weissman's book, which is simply titled The Serpent. Here he offers a lot of conjecture and what we may consider to be straw man arguments. However, some two seed line teachers or pastors of the past did indeed hold at least some of the more absurd concepts which Weissman argues against. Once again, I believe we shall see that Weissman's arguments have no merit once we explain the basis for what we believe, because this is probably the most important chapter in his book. We may present and address every single paragraph so that none of the None of our detractors can claim that we purposely skipped over anything which they may imagine that we can't answer. I don't know if you've had any um, feedback in the forums on part five or how it's going or any. Um... Um, mostly usually it's just the odd question on a uh, bit shoot, which, uh, you know, is generally just simple to answer. Um, you know, people um, who are 
kind of get into CI and then, you know, they're, they're unsure of things and I always just try and answer them as I can. And I hope these podcasts are helping them, especially um, as there's a lot of devils out there like Wiseman who are always trying to, um, you know, make it muddy and complicated. Uh, as, as we'll see as we go along, he's going to make CI seem like it's really complicated and all convoluted and all over the place, like we change our minds all the time, uh, especially in regards to the serpent, uh, as you're going to say just now. Well, well right. And I, I even think I mentioned that in, in my John podcast concerning the crucifixion of Christ last night. It is that the, um, the Jewish opposition to Christianity, they pile arguments on top of arguments on top of arguments and and that they put so much and and this is the way i said it they put so much bullshit on the table that it's hard to find the food and they do that on purpose that they attack things from every single angle it's like you, you say something about christianity or teach something is very clearly in scripture and if it's contrary to the Jews, then you'll get 10,000 Jews with 10,000 different answers back and, and feel as though you have to address every one of them to discredit every one of them individually. Yeah, yeah, and you can always yeah, and you can always spot that tactic when you look at two different people arguing. The one who's doing that tactic with 10,000 different arguments they're covering up a lie you know if you're speaking the truth it's just very simple you you look at what how christ explained it it was just very simple parables and he wasn't all over the place it was just very simplistic straight to the point and you can just tell well well right and we haven't gotten to the parables of christ yet and and i don't know if we're going to get to them until probably at least later in this chapter we we will start explaining those in relation to what we believe about um, Genesis chapter 3. And there's a lot of things that Christ said, which only make sense in the context of race and, and not in the context of mere behavior. Like that this sheep is a good sheep and that sheep's a bad sheep. It's it doesn't work out that way. His parables don't agree with that. On page 18 begins the chapter identifying the serpent. And Weissman opens by stating that the identity and nature of the serpent of Genesis 3 is undoubtedly a central issue in determining the validity of the satanic seedline doctrine. If we knew for sure who or what this serpent was, many of the questions and arguments surrounding this topic might be resolved. And, and that's fine. I, I agree with that paragraph. But if we believe the revelation of Christ, then we, knew, then we know enough about the serpent. We don't need to know anymore. He continues and he says, we have seen that the serpent of Genesis 3 represents several things. Sin, death, deception, flesh nature, opposition to God, political power, evil, a satanic kingdom. I, I, right there. And temptation. We have also seen how these things were overcome by Christ. 
or destroyed by his death and resurrection. But what exactly was the serpent? Now, as we have explained laboriously, I believe, Weissman has claimed that all the power of Satan and Satan himself was eliminated at the crucifixion of Christ. And here, in part, he bases his first argument on that claim, but we have shown that claim to be wrong. Men still sin, men still die, men are still deceived, men still have fleshly nature, men still very often oppose God, and etc., etc. Et we have also shown that the revelation and the letters of the apostles also explained that long after the crucifixion of Christ, evil powers would still be in the world and that Satan would continue to persecute the children of God. So Weissman's entire premise here, as soon as he gets started, is wrong. It's false, and it's wrong. And no, and notice um, the only thing he didn't mention was fallen angel. It, you know, he mentioned a whole plethora of other possible things, but not the simplest, the most direct one. Fallen angel or, or a group of fallen angels that rebelled against God, uh, that they mated with animals or, you know, Eve to produce, you know, these soulless beasts as, uh, you know, the apostles described them. And that, that's why they go to the lake of fire. That's why they are in opposition to God, because they're outside his creation. It's very simple. It's, it's not complicated or anything. You could explain, explain the whole thing in, you know, a few seconds or a minute. Well, well, right. But Weissman, the thing, the lists, his, his, um, he has a nine point list of what he says the serpent of Genesis three represents. And point six is point five is opposition to God. Point six is political power. Um, point eight is a satanic kingdom. And, and, that all accords with what we teach and what the Revelation teaches about these fallen angels who um, rebelled from God long before the Adamic man was even created and brought his creation into chaos and corrupted it. That's exactly what we teach. And Weissman agrees that the serpent represents these points, and then he denies the, the reality of it in, in ancient history and, and in scripture. But we could look at the world, and we could look at ancient history, and we can see it. It's tangible. But just because the serpent can be said to represent fleshly nature as Weissman said here, that was point four, does not mean that fleshly nature belongs exclusively to the serpent. So Weissman adds another layer of deception to his argument. And the significance of this particular false premise will become evident later in his book. I know it will. Neither is opposition to God exclusive to the serpent as even many well-meaning men have sinned without any help from the serpent. The fact is that Yahweh God himself created the flesh, and he called it good. 
So all of Weissman's arguments in this chapter are founded on these and a couple of other false premises, which I hope to um, reveal here. Continuing with Weissman, however, he, he begins to mix the absurd with the hypothetical. And he says, there is no agreement by Bible authorities as to the actual identity of the serpent. Some say it was a literal snake. Some say the term is symbolic of some evil agency or power. Others say the term is used figuratively to describe the character of some person. Some have said it is the devil or a demon within an ordinary snake, or that the snake is being used as a tool or instrument of Satan. In other words, some spiritual Satan is somehow controlling an ordinary snake, which is absurd. Some say the serpent of the garden is man's sense of consciousness and may be called desire, sensation, and temptation. It thus was the carnal nature of Eve speaking to her or leading her to sin. Proponents of the satanic seed-lying doctrine claim it is Satan incarnate, or a supernatural spirit being appearing in a visible form. Most authorities seem to think it was a literal serpent with some other element involved. And here Weissman did not even mention what we believe the serpent to have been, although we shall explain ourselves later. However, we certainly cannot expect the Bible to give us a name, address, pedigree, maybe even a photo ID card for the serpent. In the end, we do know what the serpent is, and the information that we are given is sufficient. But Weissman continues to contend with the issue, and he says, The serpent of Eden is sometimes called the tempter, an upright creature that became a writhing snake only after God cursed it. History reveals that this serpent has been a subject of stories, conjecture, and legends for millennia due to its ancient origin in scripture. Now, Weissman did not include in this, this in his introductory paragraph repeating what some say. Rather, it is a statement which he himself makes in response to his exclamation of what some say. So, Weissman is presenting the serpent as he sees it. <clears throat> Simply because the Bible identifies an entity in allegory does not mean that the description is physically literal, and we do not accept the notion that any upright creature was magically turned into a snake, but we will continue with the paragraph. The word serpent in the Bible is derived from the Hebrew word makash and means to make a hissing sound. The term carries the connotation of enchantment or magic. And here Weissman cites the Wycliffe Bible commentary, with which we do not necessarily agree. The word Nakash means a lot more, and he's only giving a small part of the story.
ancient Hebrew had no vowel points, right? The, the, all these, if you look at the words in a Strong's Concordance, ancient Hebrew had no vowel points or other marks. It only had letters. And all of the ancient Hebrew inscriptions or, or manuscripts like those among the Dead Sea Scrolls that have been found have no vowel points. So when you look at Strong's Concordance and the Hebrew lexicon in the back, right, and look at the word Adam, and I think you'll find Adam at um, Strong's number 117 or 118, and it's spelled with three letters, Aleph, Daleth, and Mem, which is A-D-M, in out if we switch them to english it's adm and adam has an entry at 117 118 119 120 121 the only differences are the vowel points because the masoretic rabbi invented this crazy system of all these different vowel points in order to distinguish the different parts of speech and a lot of times they were wrong about it they weren't always right about it but we see that there are five entries in the lexicon for one word, or maybe there's four for one word. But in ancient Hebrew text, it's always just ADM, ADM, everywhere you see it, ADM. So once we remove the vowel points of the Masoretic rabbis at the entry for Nakash, we see that there are a handful of meanings to the word Nakash which it is um, N and another letter which could be an H or a CH and another letter which could be an S or an SH. So it's really just NHS, but it could be N-C-H-S-H. The, um, in, in ancient Hebrew, the S and the SH and the T and the TH and the C and the CH, the H and the CH were all interchangeable. Language was a little different. Um, words could be pronounced in a smooth way or in a guttural way. It's confusing if you don't understand it. It, it, it takes a, a minute to understand it. But originally, all of these different lexicon entries were actually one word. But the rabbis added vowel points to distinguish different meanings or parts of grammar, where in ancient times such distinctions did not exist. So the vowel points in those Hebrew lexicons represent the opinions of the rabbis and not necessarily the original Hebrew. Of the various meanings of this word nakash, one is to make a hissing sound, but another is to shine, and another is enchantment, or to practice enchantment, or to use augury, to forebode, or divine, and then an omen, or augury, and another is serpent, and yet another is copper, or brass. So the same word was used to represent all of these things. A derivative of this word was used to describe the brass serpent which Moses made in the desert in Numbers chapter 21, which was also called a seraph in the same passage. In verse 8, it's called a seraph, and in verse 9, it's called 
a serpent after this word nakash. A seraph is something that's brazen out of copper. All of these definitions are found in Strong's Numbers 5172 through 5180. 5172 to 5180. But here I have taken Jesenius's definitions. In any event, there is an apparent connection in ancient Hebrew language between the concept of a serpent, enchantments, things which shine, and things which are made of brass. So, so Bill, is, is that why often there's confusion with um, some words like um, Cain, the, you know, the name Cain, it could have multiple meanings as well, like acquired, or it could be Cain, or it could be Smith, yes. with um, the old ancient Hebrew words. Yes, because it's it's the, that word Cain also had represented a multifaceted concept where it could mean to um, get or acquire something, or actually to to I guess to go get ore and smelt something out, out of iron or brass like a smith does. That there's a in, in ancient language, there's a relation between those two concepts. Even if we don't always know what it is, what the relation is, because we're out of a cultural context now. We, we don't have the same cultural context. But when the language was developed, yeah. those, and, and two, also, the, those two concepts were represented sorry. by the same word. To get or acquire. Yeah. Oh, or are we also make something uh, out of metal. I'm sorry. Kind of guessing the pronunciation as well. Sorry, Bill. Yeah, the original pronunciations are always are all... a guess. They're always a guess. Even with a lot of Greek, it's a guess because nobody for the last thousand years has spoken um, or 2,000 years has spoken classical Koine Greek. A lot of that pronunciation is a guess. And a lot of the guesses are educated guesses because we have the poets and we understand that they spoke in a rhythm. And so, so we can sometimes tell the long vowels and the short vowels by measuring the words to the rhythm that the poem is written in. And they had fixed, that they had um, fixed systems of rhythms for their poetry. So some of the guesses are educated usually, but, Ancient Hebrew, even though some of the ancient Hebrew writings were actually written as epic poetry, in Hebrew, the Exodus account is a long epic poem, just like the Iliad or the Odyssey. That's the way it was written. But it's so far removed from us that, that all of the pronunciation is a guess, and the Masoretic rabbis added vowel points that both determined parts of speech, which were not distinguished in the original texts, and added um, vowel sounds in between the consonants because they didn't have the, the full collection of vowels that we have in the Hebrew alphabet. So, yeah, a lot of it is a guess. But Paul, on, on these meanings of this word nakash, Paul seems to have made a play on the diverse meanings of the word 
where he said that Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And we see this word nakash can mean a serpent, but it can also mean to shine. So continuing with Weissman, he cites verse 3 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But I just cited verse 14, and Weissman conveniently omits any mention of verse 14. And he says that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. May indicate a type of craftiness and cunning that can influence and deceive something a mere animal would not possess. And of course, we agree with that. <clears throat> then he says, serpents are also used proverbially for wisdom. And he has a citation from Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, where Christ had told the apostles to be as wise as serpents. And then he says, Paul's reference to the serpent, citing 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, gives no insight to its identity, only its ability to deceive. And I would say, and, and Weissman has already admitted that the serpent was no mere animal, and we certainly agree. But here again, serpent is only an allegory, meaning that this serpent was wiser than all the beings which Yahweh had created. But that does not mean that the serpent was only one of the snakes that Yahweh had created. Neither is the ability to deceive unique to the serpent. However, the serpent is certainly imbued with a deceptive character, which is also evident in some of the Hebrew definitions of the term. The, the, so it's when, more the character that the, the serpent... Uh, just like how Yeshua called the Jews dogs and, you know, as in their character. Right. Um, the, the word Nakash is connected to augury, to the giving of omens, and to the, um, the foretelling of events, to divine, right? Well, you know, in Greek mythology... Apollo, their god, had received the ability to divine from a serpent. And the serpent was cast down to earth by Apollo and defeated. At the, and, and the place where that was said in their mythology to have happened was the ancient temple of Apollo that all the Greeks went to, to see the priestess and to inquire about their futures. They'd bring gifts to the temple and inquire about their futures. And that gift was said to be given to Apollo and, and of course, transmitted to the priestess by a serpent. So we see the same connection in ancient Greek mythology that we see in, in the Hebrew scripture, because in the ancient, in the context in which the Bible was written, to divine, to be able to 
read omens and tell the future that way was considered deception because it was idolatry. It was considered deception. You were being deceptive. You were trying to sell somebody something that wasn't necessarily true. So all of that is tied together in, in this ancient language and in the myths. However, Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, the verse Weissman ignored, by mentioning Satan transformed into an angel of light, just after he used the seduction of Eve in that same chapter as an allegory for the loss of virginity, Paul did identify the serpent for us, but Weissman ignored his identification. And if that Satan which seduced Eve was an angel who appeared to her as an angel of light, it must have been a fallen angel, as we read in the epistles of the other apostles and in the Revelation. So Weissman knows the story, but he is refusing to put it together, preferring instead to deny it. And doing that, he must have had an agenda. Continuing with his book with the next paragraph, he says, it is not likely we can, for certain, ever deduce what this serpent was or where it from where it came. And I wouldn't agree with that, but that's Weissman. But we should not think of this as a barrier in determining the validity of the satanic seed line doctrine, any more than our inability to fully understand the nature of God keeps us from understanding doctrines which involve the deity. There are many things in Scripture we may not fully understand, but we can determine if they are being properly used or applied. Thus, the serpent's true identity would be helpful, but it is not essential for determining if the doctrines in which it is involved are scripturally sound. And I would contend with this because we do know where the serpent came from. Because the apostles and the revelation tell us where the serpent came from. We are also told explicitly by Christ that these things were not revealed in Moses so that they may be revealed in him. And because Christ said that, and, and this is important, it's an important concept that all of these um, two seed line deniers refuse to accept. And you said this in different words earlier in the series. Christ had said that he came to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So how can we imagine that we could read only the Genesis account and understand everything? when Christ revealed things kept secret that weren't in the Genesis account. So we have to understand the parables of Christ, everything he said in the gospel, and his revelation, because the revelation is where he revealed things kept secret from the foundation of the world. The word revelation is to a, a revealing of things. So come on. But like you said earlier in the series, Weissman doesn't go to the Revelation to understand the serpent. He just argues his positions from the point of Genesis. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Christ put, puts it all in simple words. And if you just believe the simple words of Christ, then you're going to identify the serpent. 
Right. But, um, you, you know, the way Weissman's all present in. Sorry. I'm sorry. I just said you're right. It all falls into place. Yeah. But but the way Weissman presents this, it, it's like whenever you check out like those history channel documents where they go on like the exodus and they have an entire hour document uh, documentary going over the evidence and then right at the end they determine it was all made up it's just he goes to such enormous lengths was it this was it that and then it and he just says it's all nonsense in the end he's just following the exact same agenda they do it incredible it, incredible because the exodus certainly is not nonsense. Um, many ancient Greek writers, and, and I've, I, I, I think I did a podcast on this and presented five ancient witnesses dating from um, about the 5th century BC to the 1st century BC. Five ancient witnesses that verified that Moses was a historical figure and, and that the facts underlying the Exodus account were true. And, and they didn't verify the miracles of the Exodus, but they verified all the circumstances and accepted it. Manetho, Hecatahis, um, Josephus, Strabo of Cappadocia, and Diodorus Siculus all verified the historicity of Moses and the things that had come from the Exodus, the results of the Exodus, they all accepted that as history. But I've never seen those mentioned anywhere, ever. You're, you're the first person I've seen who actually brings those up. They're always buried, and they try to avoid those historical proofs at all costs. But because the Jew has tried to, and, and they've taken classical history practically out of the schools. Even the humanities don't teach enough classical history anymore. <laughs> and that they've destroyed all the connections <clears throat> between our Western Christian civilization and the, these ancient Hebrew accounts and writings. They've tried their best to obfuscate all the connections even what i just said about the greek myth of apollo and the temple of delphi and i didn't call it the temple of delphi back then but it was the temple of delphi and 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 the connection to deception and divining and augury to a serpent it, it's very clear in the greek myth that they had the same concept that the hebrew language reflects in the meanings of the words it, it's yeah. incredible. And all our myths have always had that serpent, that evil serpent. It, it's just so consistent everywhere throughout all our history and traditions. And, and right, as we said earlier, the Babylonian creation myth, that the concept of a serpent creating society out of chaos. And, and that's the flip side of the coin from the Bible story. It's exactly to seed line. Okay. We're digressing, but that's cool. We, we probably need a few. We do know where the serpent came from because the apostles and the revelation tell us where the serpent came from. But we are also told explicitly by Christ that these things were not revealed in Moses so that they may be revealed in him. The Christian who believes Christ accepts the evidence 
that Christ presents. Like you said, all you have to do is accept the simple language of Scripture. Weissman uses sophistic arguments to dismiss that evidence or pervert the intentions of the New Testament writers. But here we would agree with Weissman with Weissman's conclusion in part that the Bible identifies the serpent sufficiently and that there are other things in Scripture which we cannot fully understand, but which we can accept from what little understanding we do have. However, the examples Weissman makes from it go off in the wrong direction, and that is probably also purposeful, and, and we will see that as we proceed. On page 19 of his book, continuing with Weissman under the, under the subtitle, The Serpent, Devil, and Satan, he's going to try to dismantle all of this by um, exhibiting the fact that the word for devil was applied in many other contexts and the word for Satan was applied in many other contexts. But that doesn't discredit what we say about two seed line, and in the end, we will demonstrate that. So Weissman says, the serpent is often identified with the term Satan, or the devil. This has caused much confusion about the true nature and identity of the serpent. This is especially so, since the terms devil and Satan are used in scripture several, in several different ways, and are ascribed to many different things or persons. The terms are not used exclusively in reference to the serpent. In scripture, the terms devil and Satan are used as follows. And now he has a long list um, on page 20 of his book, and we're going to address every single point in the list, which uh, I hope it's not too tedious or laborious. His so, so, Bill, um, just just a simplistic overview. If it was a capital S or capital D, that would be um, collectively all of Satan. Uh, and if it's a little D or a little S, that could just be any Jew or any nig, you know, would be a devil or a Satan. But collectively, you know, all the angels and their offspring collectively are the Satan or the devil. Would well, that be well, a kind of simplistic explanation? That, that's an, yeah, that's an oversimplistic explanation, but that's fine. That's how we look at it. What we have in the world, because there were two trees at the beginning. There was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we are certain that that represented a race of people. And there was a tree of life, and we are certain that that represented a race of people. And... We have people who are not created in the Genesis account, these other races who came from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their origination is with the fallen angels who corrupted God's creation. And then we have the Adamic race, which is the only race in Genesis that we can positively identify was created by God the only race of, of men that we can positively identify 
as being created by God. Now, men sin, men sin. And if you do me wrong, I might consider you a Satan with a small s, an adversary to me. Or if you falsely accuse me, which is what that word devil really means in Greek, that diabolos, it doesn't mean that in Hebrew, but it means that in Greek. If you falsely accuse me, then I could say that you are a diabolos, which is the Greek word for devil. That's translated devil, right? So you could be a diabolos to me, which is a false accuser. Because white men, we screw up all the time. We sin. So does that mean that there is not a capital D devil, a race of individuals, which stands for a race or any member of the race of individuals, whose intrinsic character is to lie and cheat and deceive and, and falsely accuse. Does that mean that there is not a capital S Satan, which to us represents a collective or any member of a group who are continually by their nature opposed to us and opposed to God? So Weissman is confusing these two different concepts in his list. And he's using the fact that you may be my personal enemy to discredit that God has enemies. He's trying to exploit that and obfuscating the meanings of the words and their application in Scripture. In Scripture, every Adamic man can have personal enemies. But God also has enemies. And the enemies of God, since we believe that we are the children of God, the enemies of God are also the enemies, perpetual enemies of our race, because we are the race created by the God of the Bible. So they're his enemies and they're our enemies. There's a capital S Satan that persecutes the seed of the woman in the Revelation. But we can each have a small s Satan among our own people. So Weissman is confusing the issue by obfuscating the difference. And he's doing it purposely. And he's ignoring an aspect of Hebrew and Greek grammar which tells us the difference if we pay attention to it. The King James translators did not always pay attention to it. Sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't. So Weissman says, in the Old Testament, the word for Satan means opponent, adversary, accuser, or to attack and end. Yes, of course, we would agree with that. The angel of God was an adversary, that word Satan, to Balaam. Balaam was the, um, the false prophet that the king of Moab tried to hire against the children of Israel, citing Numbers chapter 22. And yes, we agree with that. But just because the angel of God opposed a false prophet, making the angel of God a Satan 
to the perspective of the false prophet. Well, if you catch a burglar in the act of a crime, you are going to be that burglar's enemy because he's going to be trying to get away. And he's going to be trying to hit you and overcome you, treating you as an enemy. Is that not right? But does that make you Satan? From the burglar's perspective, you're Satan. You're his adversary. But from your perspective, you're not Satan. You're a, you're a good man trying to defend your property. So Weissman's obfuscating the use of the word in order to create, Weissman's creating the confusion when he should know better. So he goes down the list. David was referred to as a Satan or adversary to the Philistines, and that's fine. Then he says, the Lord caused, the Lord caused Hadad the Edomite to be an adversary or Satan unto Solomon. Okay. And he also made Rishon, the son of Eliadah, a Satan to Israel, citing 1 Kings chapter 11. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That doesn't discredit the idea that there is a, a, a group of people who are always Satan. And for that reason, they are referred to collectively as Satan or as the synagogue of Satan. Finally, he says, and finally, until we interrupt him with our own explanations, next he says, God is referred to as Satan, who stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. <clears throat> and we don't necessarily agree with that, but that, that's even fine. To interrupt Weissman's list, we agree with this, but not all opponents, adversaries, accusers, or attackers are also serpents or Satan with a capital S. <clears throat> it is also not certain that God himself was the Satan who provoked David to number Israel. While the condensed account in Second Chronicles says Satan stood up against Israel to provoke David to have a census, <clears throat> it would be better to read an adversary stood up against Israel. The Text of the opening verse of 2 Samuel chapter 24, an account which is out of the chronology and is therefore a later edition, says, and again, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. But we are not told how Yahweh moved David to do this. And an adversary may have been used as the vehicle by which Yahweh had this done. But we cannot imagine that God is Satan for that reason. In other words, both of those accounts are condensed, concise, and only telling us part of the story. They're not telling us the whole story. The difference between Satan with a capital S denoting a particular Satan, for which reason we prefer to translate it as Satan in that manner, and an adversary, who may be just about anyone, is in what we call a substantive. And in Hebrew or Greek, and this is a translation issue, in Hebrew or Greek, substantives are very common. For instance, in Genesis chapter 1, where the Hebrew reads Adam, it is usually translated as man, 
but where it says eth ha adam in Genesis chapter 2 eth ha adam it is properly the name of a particular man which is adam with a capital a the phrase eth ha adam is a substantive it is a group of words of which none may even be nouns by themselves, but which are used as a noun. And often, as in the case of Etha Adam, as a proper noun. By itself, the Hebrew word Satan is only a common noun, which means adversary. But where its Greek equivalent is used with the definite article, it is a substantive referring to a particular adversary. And for that reason, it is often translated as Satan. This is also the case where we see the word Satan appear in the King James Version, in Job chapters 1 and 2, and in Zechariah chapter 3, that in those places the word Satan is accompanied with a proper noun, or, or I'm sorry, with a definite article, and when it's accompanied with a definite article, we could see that it's being used as a proper noun to identify a particular Satan. But that does not mean that the particular Satan referenced by each writer is a supernatural or spiritual entity. We never say that in, in, in Christogenia, Christian identity. We never say that. Weissman continues his list with another word, and he returns to Satan later, but we will continue to discuss this same topic. He says, the Greek word for devil is diabolos, and that's true. That's one Greek word translated devil. There's another one. People who are slanderers are called a diabolos, and, and that is in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 11, and, and that's true. And he says, people are called diabolus or devil who are false accusers. And he's citing Paul's epistles to Titus and Timothy again. And that's fine. That's true. The Greek adjective diabolus describes an accuser. But when but it was used when the accusations were understood to be false. So it infers, a it implies a false accuser. And for that reason, it is translated as false accuser in the Christogenian New Testament. There is another noun which also means accuser, which is categorous, which also appears in reference to Satan in Revelation chapter 12, but it's not um categorist wasn't proper wasn't commonly used in the new testament but in that same chapter of the revelation we see that diabolus and categorus are each accompanied with definite articles so they function as substantives describing a particular accuser or false accuser there they are also equated with other nouns, which are also written as substantives. So each one of those words in that passage in Revelation chapter 12 is being used to describe a particular individual. 
who is known by those labels because that is the character and nature of that individual. Throughout the Greek of the New Testament, we see another title, Lord, which is usually translated from the word curious. Now, that word curious, K-U-R-I-O-S in Greek, <laughs> that word curious is an adjective that describes someone or something that has power or authority. But when it is used with a definite article, it becomes a noun, referring to a particular lord. And in most contexts, it is lord with a capital L in reference to God or Christ, where we usually write it with a capital letter, or in the King James, it appears in all capital letters. Weissman is not explaining the distinction of the substantive when it accompanies these words, and therefore, he is only telling half of the story. He's only telling half the story so that he can obfuscate the difference in the usage of these words. So he continues with an example for Diabolus, and he says, Diabolus, or devil, is used for evil spirits, citing Acts chapter 10, verse 38. <clears throat> now, this is true, that in Acts 10, 38, it certainly is referring to what must be an evil spirit, a demon, as a devil. And there it says, I'm, I'm going to read it, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good, and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. And that word there is Diabolus. For God was with him. Now, one 6th century uncial manuscript, the Codex Laudianus, actually wrote the word for Satan instead of Diabolus. But I would not encourage that change, even though it is accurate. More importantly, once again, Weissman misses the fact <clears throat> That in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, the reference Diabolus is a substantive, and it refers to a particular um, entity, a particular devil, not just anyone who might accuse somebody falsely, but it refers to a member of a particular group whose characteristic is to be a Diabolus. So the word is used of that group, whether they be individuals or demons or spirits, the word is used of that group or any member of that group as a proper noun. That's the nature of the substantive. However, as I have already said, usually the Greek word for demon is employed in such contexts. It's only this one time that a spiritual entity is called a diabolus. Usually the Greek word is demon. And, and that's a huge error in the King James translation, in, in my opinion. Even though in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, Luke evidently sought to associate um, demons and the concept of diabolus or false accuser in his writing in that passage. <clears throat> Usually, the King James Version 
translated both Diabolus and Dahimon. Dahimon is the Greek word demon, and Diabolus is the Greek word for false accuser. And there's a diminutive form of Dahimon, Dahimanian. And the King James took all these words and translated them rather consistently as devil. And that's a cause for confusion. Even if demons are devils, and sometimes devils are demons, it's still a cause for confusion that the King James did not translate, did not distinguish between those two different words in its translation. In the Christogenian New Testament, in my translation, Diabolus is always false accuser, and Dahimon is always demon, or its diminutive form, Dahimanian, is always demon, in order to distinguish between the two different concepts. They are two different concepts, a person that's an accuser and a demon that's an evil spiritual entity are two different concepts. The King James just translated it all as devils. Comparing the Greek, embodied devils are almost always false accusers, the word being diabolus, and disembodied devils are demons, the word being dahimon or dahimanian. Acts chapter 1038 is the one exception to that simple rule. Continuing with the last of Weissman's examples for Diabolus, Christ called Judas a devil in John chapter 6. But where Christ called Judas a devil in John chapter 6, there is no definite article. So Christ was not calling Judas the devil. Rather, he was only calling him a devil. And while that is significant, it does not eliminate the possibility that the devil is not a, it is a particular entity. In fact, it helps to prove it. Once the reasons for Christ having called Judas a devil are made evident, up to this point, Judas had made no accusations. No sin was imputed to him. So Christ, not being a false accuser, must have had some other tangible reason for calling him that, as he said it openly before all of his disciples. If I stand openly with all of our friends or all of the people in the community, and I call you a diabolus, a devil, if I don't have a real good reason for calling you that, then I'm a devil. Is that not true? If I'm making a false accusation yeah. against you, then I'm the false accuser. So Christ must have had a real good reason for calling Judas the devil. What's the reason? Up to that point, he committed no sin. So, so Bill, Bill, is there a Hebrew word for devil as well? Or a devil? Well, well right. And, and, and... That's that that is um <clears throat> that is a, a kind of more complicated but not really that there's a Hebrew word for devil and that there's actually a couple of them and words that are translated devil but don't really have the same connotation as the Greek word 
translated devil. I mean, one of them does and one of them doesn't, right? <clears throat> the first word translated devil in Hebrew is actually the word satyr. Now, satyr is a Greek word, but it's a Hebrew word. It, it's a, it, it refers to a hairy goat. But the children of Israel were not sacrificing, making sacrifices to hairy goats. They were making sacrifices to demonic entities that were called satyrs. Leviticus chapter 17. So the King James translators took that word satyr and translated it as devil. But if they had translated it as satyr, perhaps we would make a connection to the Greek mythology of the satyr as being, okay, in Greek, the satyr <clears throat> was an individual in the wilderness who was half man, half goat, and given to revelry and indiscriminate and insatiable sexual pleasure. That's what a satyr is to the Greeks. And that's what a devil is to the Hebrews. <laughs> and there are more connections between Greek mythology and, and culture and Hebrew um, religion and, and culture than we could ever imagine if we only read the English translations. <clears throat> so, that sort of devil is not really a false accuser. <clears throat> it, it, from, from the definitions of the words and the correlation with the myths and the Hebrew perspective, right? The satyr isn't really a false accuser. The satyr is just a human party animal that wants to screw everything he can, basically. Okay, there's even a word in English, and, and I forget exactly how it's spelled, but it's derived from the word satyr, and it describes um, insatiable sexual urges, right? So, the other word, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, where it says they sacrificed unto devils and not to God. That word is shed or shade. And that's a Hebrew word that means shed. I believe it's probably the same word from which we get our word shadow. And because of that, our word shade. And the word shed in Hebrew refers to a demon. Now, even in Homer's epic poetry, spirits were sometimes referred to as shadows. So there's also correlations there with Greek mythology and, and ancient writings. But the word shed is a demon. That's a spiritual entity. And that has a direct um, connection to the Greek word Dahimon in its meaning, right? It's directly correlated. But Seder and Diablos, there is no correlation. No direct correlation. Yeah. That that's fascinating, Bill, because because the first one you can clearly see that it's the, you know, devil races that just go about well, you know, their whole lives just for pleasure and how the Hebrews understood it. 
And then the other one, you know, a shade, a ghost, an evil spirit, a dark spirit, it, it all, you know, makes sense. Absolutely makes sense. It should absolutely make sense. It's, this is the scripture. It's not the Weissman version and it's not the church version. It's the real version when you look at the actual definitions of the terms and, and when you understand the ancient myths and that those myths came from somewhere. There's, there's a reason for those myths. I mean, that they weren't just a bunch of freaking Jews sitting in Hollywood making shit up. There's a reason for the ancient myths. They transmit a lot of historical truth, even if we can't believe the myth on the surface, right? Like, Apollo didn't really throw a serpent out of heaven and kill it to inherit its powers of divinity, of, of divining and, and being able to tell the future. The surface of the myth is a, a, a story. It's a tale. But there's an underlying truth which it transmits that correlates directly with Hebrew scripture. That's not why I believe two seed line. I believe two seed line because of my understanding of scripture and its correlation with actual history. But there are so many interlocking pieces in the myths of the, the, the um, wider culture. I'm not going to say the surrounding cultures because originally the Hebrew and the Greek culture were the same. And, and we would have to go back to the, and, and I've already got, um, presentations, podcasts, where I demonstrated that. I think there were two podcasts at Christagenia. They were early podcasts. They were like 2010, 2011, which demonstrate that, that that's true. So there were your Hebrew words for devil. One is a satyr in the wilderness. And, and to us, that, that's the other races. The races that the Hebrews, because they were racists, excluded from society. So who are the satyrs? The Canaanites, the Edomites. In, in fact, that word satyr can also mean rough, right? And that's why it, it came to refer to a goat, because it can also mean rough. Um, rough as in hairy with a goat. So these were rough men who were said to be, by the Greeks, half man and half goat. Because they were rough, they lived in the wilderness, they were excluded from society, and they're described as, like you said, as, um, I forget exactly how you put it, but they, they only care for the pleasures of this world, and, and, and they live for the day, right? Well, well that word Seder means rough, so Esau lived in Mount Seir, S-E-I-R. It's actually the same word. Esau lived in a rough place. Mount Seir was a rough place. Um, rocky place that you would not want to live in. But it was also used as a, um, a, as a haven. Petra was also used as a haven for caravan robbers. And, and they robbed the caravans. So e Esau was probably the first caravan robber of, of our race. But, well, anyway, the word Saturn and various related words in Latin came from that same word, Seder. Saturn was originally a storm god, and that word for rough was connected to storms in Hebrew as well. So Saturn 
the storm god got his name from that same Hebrew word. And there are other connections. Yeah, yeah, and also um, all non-white races, you know, without our constant aid, they would look rough, they would look filthy, they would look disgusting, and you would, the only way you could describe them is just rough outcasts, not part of our society. Well, that's basically how Diodorus Siculus had described the blacks in Ethiopia. He, he described whites in Ethiopia, and, and then he described these black people that, with woolly hair and flat noses that were as far removed from humanity as possible. He didn't even really consider them people, but he had to call them people because he didn't know what else to call them. Weissman continues his list by returning to examples for Satan, and he says, Christ called Peter Satan, and he used that capital S. He purposely used that capital S in, in his book. And it's true that Christ called Peter Satan. But again, in Greek, there is no definite article. So Peter is not the Satan or a particular capital S Satan. Rather, if we go back and read that account in Matthew chapter 16, Christ told Peter what was going to happen. But Peter was expressing a will contrary to what Christ had already told him was the will of God. So Christ referred to Peter as a Satan or adversary in an exclamation for that reason, because Peter was acting as an adversary to God by denouncing the will of God in preference to his own will. Peter was acting as a small s Satan. That does not take away the idea that there are people on the earth who are capital S Satans because everything they do, their very existence is contrary to God. Continuing with Weissman's list, a person who is an, an enemy in war is a Satan or adversary. And that's true, a small s Satan or adversary. There, Weissman used a small s but why didn't he use a small s where he said Christ called Peter Satan? He's trying to create a, 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 a deception. He's trying to obfuscate the truth, to cloud the issue. If he'd have seen that there was no definite article in Matthew 16, 23, where the word Satan appears, then he could not have used that capital S with any honesty. He says an accuser before the judgment seat is called Satan. And he used a small s. Weissman's a deceiver. And then he says a person that is an opponent or enemy is called Satan. And he used a small s again or devil with a small d. And all of this is fine. All of this is true. But Weissman's failure to consider the substantive is leading him to the point of deceit. In his examples from Zechariah, Matthew, and 1 Peter, the word for devil is part of a substantive, which makes it a noun that refers to a particular adversary, Satan, and not just any earthly opponent. So there are two different things going on here. We have earthly opponents that can be a Satan to us or an 
adversary to us. But then there is a collective opponent or a particular opponent who has been opposed to us all throughout history. And where that one is referred to in scripture, the definite article is employed to inform us that it's a particular opponent. Now continuing to the last two examples in Weissman's list. He returns again to Diabolos, or devil, and says man's carnal nature is the devil. And he cites James chapter 4, verse 7, and Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. And he's full of it. He's lying. Here, just like a serpent, Charles Weissman very subtly introduces an idea that is not represented in the texts of the passages which he cites. Weissman says, man's carnal nature is the devil, but that is not what James or Paul are saying. Just as he attributed fleshly nature to the devil earlier in the chapter, as if man does not have his own independent fleshly nature, Weissman is adding his own concepts into scripture as a trap so that he can deceive his reader as his argument progresses. He is seducing the mind so that later he can spring the hoax that the flesh is the devil upon his readers. This is subtlety. Weissman is being as subtle as the serpent was in Genesis chapter 3. <laughs> he saved that one right for last, just slipped it in right at the end. Yeah. It, in James chapter 4, after warning about those who pray to satisfy their own lusts, we read, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain? The spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy, but he gives, he gives more grace, meaning God. Wherefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. <clears throat> Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Then James says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, there is nowhere that James says that the devil is one's fleshly nature. Rather, the devil could certainly be an entity in the world which seduces men to lust. That could describe any panderer. In fact, that describes the world today as we see it on the internet, in the media, in the arts and advertisements and sports and entertainments where pornography is rampant, youth is worshipped, idolatry is everywhere. As Paul explains in Romans chapter 6 and 7, following the desires of the flesh lead one to sin, but that does not make the flesh itself the devil. It makes no sense for James to have meant, resist the flesh, and the flesh will flee from you. But that is certainly what Weissman implied. Likewise, in Ephesians chapter 4, 
After Paul discussed the sinful Israelites of old and how they were alienated from God and took to all sorts of pagan perversions, we read, but you have not learned so in Christ. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation, conversation means behavior in this context, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. In other words, the man, the fleshly man, was originally created by God to be righteous and holy. So the flesh is not the devil. And wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. In other words, we're all the same flesh. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. As it was in James, the word diabolos is accompanied by a definite article referring to a particular accuser or devil. But if we are all in the flesh and we are all tried by the flesh, as Paul also explained in Hebrews and in Romans and elsewhere, how do we not give place to the flesh? Yet a little further on in chapter 5, Paul spoke of the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. Paul went on not to speak of converting them, but of reproving them. And he said, for it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. As we have said, it is the gospel of Christ which is meant to separate the wheat from the tares, and tares do not become wheat by hearing the gospel. Yet, you know, there's something I, I didn't put into my notes here because it is really um, difficult to explain. But it is the nature of the Jew to coax someone into sin so that the sin must be accepted. And once the sin is accepted, then we are all guilty of the same sin. And we can no longer reject the sin because the Jew, in his natural role as false accuser, will inform us that we approved of the sin. He will hold that against us. That is a pattern throughout history. That is why Paul said in Romans chapter 1, after he had spoken about all of the um, immorality that was going on at Rome, the homosexuality, the lesbians, the, the men with men burning in their desires for one another, and he went on to list how these people end up, all the sins that they turn to, that they end up in because they accepted sin. And he says that they who commit such things are worthy of death. And not only those who do them, 
but those who have pleasure in them that do them, those who accept them that do them. If you accept the sin, you, in the eyes of God, become guilty of the same sin. So if you accept a sodomite, which is called a homosexual today, or a fornicator, which is a race mixer, then you're just as guilty of sodomy and fornication as they are. But once you accept it, the Jew naturally holds it against you that you've accepted it. He coaxes you into sin. He panders to your depravities, to your fleshly weaknesses. The sin is not the devil. The panderer is the devil. Like I said in the first epistle of John, there's a distinction between the sinner and he who is creating or authoring sin. That's another distinction that the popular translations of the Bible ignore. If, if Weissman... Yeah, it's, is, pre it's, pretty, it's pretty amazing. Sorry. I'm sorry, go on, go on. I was going to say it's pretty amazing. Even then, Paul and James could see what they're up to, what they're doing. You know, he could they could see behind the lines that uh, the constant coaxing and pandering. Like today, it's more obvious with the media. You can just switch on the TV. But even then, the Jews have always done this all throughout history. It's their natural character to pervert and destroy our societies, to make their sins the norm, where whatever they do is just normal. Like such as the uh, mass homosexuality and the transgenderism and all you know all the disgusting things they've brought onto us. Well, well, absolutely, and 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 the children of Israel were told as we saw it in in Leviticus, right? Leviticus seventeen and Le Deuteronomy thirty-two, where we were discussing the meaning, the Hebrew meanings of the word for devil, right? Um, devils are satyrs. And devils are also demons. So there's two types of devils. And there's two types of devils in the New Testament. False accusers and demons. And, and they're false accusers and they're no longer satyrs because through, through the, their ability to race mix with us, eventually they got themselves into our society. And by the time of the apostles, devils were all over the place. The Edomites were accepted by the Judeans and converted, and they started race mixing with them. That that the Arab tribes became accepted by the Greeks and Romans and, and folded into Greco-Roman society, and they started race mixing with them. And, and it started long before that in, in Nineveh and Babylon and, and Carchemish and all these other places that are, some of them aren't really even hardly mentioned in the scripture. But... These um, devils had actually gotten into society. So in, in the New Testament, they're not called satyrs anymore. They're called diabolos or, or false accusers. So that's the word that, that the providence of God chose by which to identify them. Anyway, <clears throat> basically, when they get into our society, they never fit in with it. They only disrupted, and they disrupted ancient, I, I, I'd hate to call it pagan society, because the Romans, as Paul said in Romans chapter 1, the Romans had the truth of God and changed it into a lie. As um, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
the ancestors of the Dorian Greeks were in the Exodus with Moses. Their ancestors had the truth of God at one time, but in their in in their colonization of the Mediterranean, their establishment of new nations, they were ultimately perverted and corrupted into worshiping all of these false pagan gods. And in the, in the ancient world, James is telling these Christians to resist the devil and he will flee from you. And that's because all of these non-Christian people were sitting in these pagan temples, these temples of idolatry, and those pagan temples were also centers of banking, centers of prostitution. They were the restaurants and nightclubs of the ancient world. That they a lot the society, the pagan society, revolved around the temple, the temple of Diana, in Ephesus, which in Greek is the temple of Artemis. The temple of Diana, the artificers. The, the smiths, right, had brought Paul to trial in Ephesus. They wanted to kill him because he was teaching this new religion which abandoned all this idolatry that they were making their money from. Now, the Temple of Diana was also famous for prostitution. People came from all over the Greek and Roman world to visit the prostitutes in these temples. So there were things going on in the background that aren't even mentioned in the New Testament because the, the, the um, first disagreement was with the Smiths who created these little brass idols, which fit into that word Nakash. It's all connected. The concepts are all connected. <laughs> The, the coppersmith wanted to kill Paul for preaching Christianity because he was going to lose his business creating these little nakashas that deceive people. It's all connected. And the goddess of the temple is really a demon and probably was a satyr at one time. It's all connected. So that's the devil that James is telling people to flee from. And that's the devil that Paul is telling people not to give place to. It's that idolatry which controlled the world. Because John the Apostle wrote in, her, in, in his first epistle, and, and the King James mistranslated it because it's a substantive. The King James has the whole world lieth in wickedness, but that's not what John wrote. John wrote, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. It's a substantive, but it's just a different adjective. It's not Satan or Diablos. It's actually Poneiros, which is evil. But John used a substantive, meaning a particular evil, a particular evil entity. So why did Paul... If it's true, if Weissman is true, that Paul meant to resist the flesh, or, or that Paul meant do not give place to the flesh, where he said neither give place to the devil. If that is true, why did Paul 
write later in that same epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6, put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, so the devil is not the flesh, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And those temples and those priests that operated those temples were the, the real controllers of society. Because they controlled society at the local level, they had power over the hearts and minds of the people and kept the people committing fornication, um, idolatry, adultery, and all of these other sins that the apostles are telling people to depart from. That's the spiritual wickedness in high places, and the kings and the emperors and the politicians that upheld that system. That's the spiritual wickedness in high places. And some of those people were Adamic men caught up in sin who, who were doing those things, and some of those people were would have formerly been called satyrs, but now they are Roman citizens, right, or, or <laughs> Greek citizens, the enemy is fleshly, but the enemy is not merely the flesh. Otherwise, Paul, did he really mean that we put on the whole armor of God to stand against the wiles of the flesh and then say, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood? That is ridiculous. Paul was not referring to mere flesh where he said, neither give place to the devil. Rather, he was referring to those same earthly entities which we today should wrestle against, against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, those fucking Jews up in New York and, and behind every um, Catholic and Protestant denomination that never teaches the truth, behind all these educational institutions. That's what we should be wrestling against, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Paul wasn't talking about spiritual wickedness in clouds. He was talking about spiritual wickedness in all of the high places here on earth. Now, Weissman has one more item in his list, and he says, oppressive governmental authorities are the devil. And this, too, is a lie, because it is an oversimplification. In Romans chapter 13, Paul described how governments also serve the will of God as he uses them to punish disobedient men. And I think we should probably drop off right here or set Weissman aside right here and address this when we return. What do you think? I don't mind. Sure. Uh, I was just going to say that that's a very difficult concept for some people to accept that everything's within the power of Yahweh, even the evil oppression of government. It's uh, a punishment to us. Right. And many people, they, they find that very hard to accept. And, and that's going to be a longer conversation, but I, I don't want to rush it. 
I wanted to get through these notes today, but I don't, and this whole list, this is the last item in the list. I think it'd be better if we left it because I don't want to rush it, but it is a difficult concept. Yeah. Yeah, sure. It is a difficult concept. Yeah, absolutely. We can go for it. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, we can really go for it. I'll probably elaborate even more on, on what I have here, but the apostles understood the prophets and they understood that we were still going to be, and, and I could explain that next week, but they understood that we were going to suffer under evil, evil powers for quite some time into their future. So that they, they knew that God works in, in, in processes, not in instant miracles. I, I mean when we read about the beast or the fall of Babylon or things like that in, in the revelation that they describe processes that take sometimes hundreds of years to complete. And, and that's difficult for people to, um, to grasp because most people want to see all this in, in a three minute YouTube video, right? You, you can't do it in a three minute YouTube <laughs> video. <laughs> Life don't work in three minute YouTube videos. Well, no, Rome took centuries to fall, and and likely Babylon could take quite a while as well. Absolutely. The, the Roman Republic lasted 500 years. It took centuries to build to the point where it was basically usurped. Caesar was a usurper. Julius Caesar usurped the freedom of the people of Rome and their republic, which operated pretty good for 500 years and maintained a lot of integrity, an amazing amount for that time, over the 500 years. But from the time that Caesar usurped it, that they had one quote-unquote good or seemingly good emperor was um, Augustus, Octavian, Augustus Caesar. And he was loved by everybody and lasted over 50 years. But from there, it was all downhill. It was all decay from there, and the process for it to all fall apart took practically 500 more years, almost another 500 years before it all fell apart. But that entire 500 years, that end, the, the last 500 years of Rome was all decay and war and, and constant struggles, and it, it was... It, it wasn't um, anything that we should be proud of as a race uh, because it, it ruined everything we built, but it was all depraved. Okay. Yeah, they tried to any... hang on till the end. <laughs> I, I don't know if you have any closing remarks. No, not really. Just look forward to next week. Uh, that was great, Bill. Absolutely. Praise Christ. Thank you. Yeah. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, not the God of all the evil devil races out there. Thanks, all, Bill. All the satyrs. Whenever we look at somebody that's not white, we should consider them a satyr. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Take care.